Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So this week, we're starting a brand new series we're calling Outrageous. And we're looking at some of the the astonishing, outrageous claims that you find in Scripture. Um, And most of them come right from the lips of Jesus, uh, who said some incredible things like, Love your enemies. uh, Forgive those who harm you. Um, It's better to give than to receive. Um, If anyone would save his life, he must lose it. And if he would lose his life for my sake, he will gain it. Um, Just some pretty outrageous, outlandish kind of things. And this morning, we're going to look at one of them that is probably the most outrageous of all. And it's really the one on which pretty much everything else that he says hangs on. And it is this claim. It's found in John's gospel. If you want to turn there, um, grab your Bibles. Learn book of John, gospel of John, chapter 14. I want to set this up a little bit. This is the last, in the last couple of days, just before Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified. And he's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. And so he's gathered them together, and he says these words. It's in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord... We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, and here's the statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you all for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's pretty outrageous. A pretty outrageous statement. It sounds so arrogant. It sounds so elitist and exclusive and um, superior. And you wonder, how can, how can Jesus say something like that? How can he make that kind of a claim? Why would he make that kind of a claim? Doesn't that just sound just so narrow? It sounds so exclusive. It just, it just doesn't seem to sit right. And, 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 and maybe if you're here this morning and, and that's one of the things that keeps you most from following Christ because you say, I like his teachings. I think he was a great moral teacher, but I just can't buy this only way kind of thing. I am glad you're here this morning because I hope as we go through this and kind of pull this apart and look at it, that you get a better understanding of why he said what he said and, and what it means and, and in the long run what it means for you because ultimately that's what it comes down to is what will you decide about that statement? It's an outrageous claim. The only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father except by me. How could he make such an outrageous claim? Well, there's a couple of things that you need to understand. One of them is this, that only Jesus possesses that equality with God. 
No other religious leader, no other founder of a religion ever made that kind of a claim. But Jesus did. He claimed, and, and, and his claim, his assertion to be equal with God is at the heart of this idea of being the only way. He said, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Why? Because you've seen me. Believe me when I say, I am in the father and the father is in me. What he was doing in that statement was saying, I am God among you. I am divine. Now, there's a lot of skeptics over the years who have tried to say that's not really what Jesus meant, that his followers have now twisted his words or made it to seem to say something that he never really intended to say. One of them, a man by the name of John Hick, wrote a book back in the 70s. He talked about, he says, that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is that he was so, so interconnected, so God-conscious that, that, that he was closer to God than anybody. And so that relationship, he almost vibrated the divine presence. But he really wasn't making a claim to be equal with God. The trouble with that is it doesn't jibe with the rest of the gospel message. Because over and over and over again, you find Jesus making those kinds of statements. You find, in fact, when we were looked last fall, when we were going through the book of Luke, uh, Luke's gospel. At one time, Jesus healed a man who, who had been a paralytic and had been let down through the roof tiles um, right in front of him inside this house. And the first thing he said to the man was, your sins are forgiven. And everybody got their panties in a bunch because they said, who could forgive sins but God alone? Now, they lowered this guy down to be healed, and he's forgiving sins. And they all got upset about that. And so Jesus said, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, now I say to you, get up and walk. And he was healed. He claimed divinity before he did the healing. And you find this over and over and over again. Jesus was very, very clear about the claims that he made. In fact, in John's gospel, there's at least seven different what we call I am sayings. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. And when he uses those two words, I am, what he is doing is he is using what was understood to be the name for God in the Hebrew religion. I am. We sang about it this morning. The great I am. That God has no beginning or end. He is just is. And when Jesus uses those two words, he is claiming equality with God. And he did it on many occasions. On one occasion, he said, the I and the Father are one. And when he said that, all of his enemies wanted to take up stones right then and there and stone him. Because of the claim. And he said, are you going to stone me for all the good things that I've been doing? And they said, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See, they understood what he was saying. And if that was not what he was saying, if he really was a great moral teacher but not God, that would have been the time to clear it up. They would have been saying, oh, wait, wait. Is that what you heard? I'm sorry. You misunderstood me. I wasn't making that claim. And if there was any time that he would have done that, it would have been at his trial when he was brought before Pilate. Because that was the charge. That he had claimed to be equal with God. And if there's any moment when your life is on the line, if there's any time to clear up any confusion that there might possibly be, it would be there to say, wait a minute, Pilate, this is all just one big misunderstanding. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's not what I meant. I know that's what they, they're telling you, but that's not. No, he accepted what they said and what they believed about him. Because that's the claim that he was making. He never said, whoa, this is just a big mistake. See, 
His claim to be the way is rooted in his claim to divinity. And only Jesus made that claim. There is no other religious leader that ever, ever made that claim. But Jesus did. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, the founders of every other religion say, do this and you will find the divine. Jesus says, I am the divine, come to you. To do for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus' claim was to be God, become man. And that tells us some things about the nature of God. It tells us, first of all, that he is a God who wants to be known. Not in some esoteric, far-off, um, hidden way, but in a real relationship. He came and lived among us. Which tells us something else. That It also tells us that he knows us. That Jesus, you, you could not find a more compassionate, caring, including person in all of human history. If Jesus was coming by that claim to mean nobody gets into this club because this is an exclusive club, then you would think that's the way he would have lived his life. Except when you look at his life and his ministry, there was no one more inclusive than Jesus was. There was no one who reached out to people that nobody else would give the time of day. There was no one who would touch a leper like Jesus would because everybody else was afraid of getting it. There's no one who would take time to talk to a Samaritan woman, but Jesus did. If he is setting up something exclusive, this is not the way you would do it. And so when you read those words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and if that conjures up for you this idea that this is some superior, special club, some elitist country club that only members get in, and they've got to know the secret handshake and all that kind of stuff, that you look at the life of Jesus and you realize that is not what he meant. Now let me say, there have been a lot of, a lot of things said and done arrogantly in the name of Christ and in the name of Christianity that had nothing to do with this claim that Jesus was making. Jesus made this claim because he was different than anybody else. He was God become a man. In his acts of compassion and his interaction with people clearly tells us that this way that he is making is a way that is wide open to everybody. And only Jesus made that claim. Secondly, only Jesus provides a real remedy for sin. See, the biblical record is one of a world that was created good and has gone bad. That we live in a world that is broken and dark. And the biblical record is a record of God's work in human history restoring and redeeming back to what was intended. And Jesus is the culmination of that. Because there is this problem in this world that is called sin. And you and I, every one of us in this room, share in it. We are broken. There is a darkness deep within every one of us. And we're really good at hiding it. And we're really good at keeping it a secret from everybody around. In fact, we're really good at hiding it in ourselves. But every once in a while, you get a glimpse. This is last week. I got a glimpse of the darkness inside of me. We'd been on vacation, and we were, trying, we were coming back, going to catch our flight, and we had, we had um, scheduled to be picked up with an airport shuttle from our hotel to get us to the airport, and we were the first ones picked up, and so we got on. Everything was fine. The shuttle was on time. Everything was great. Got to the second hotel to pick up this couple. They weren't ready, and instead of just leaving them, the shuttle stayed there for 15 minutes. 
And they finally got on, and we got moving again. Then we had to make one more stop, and we made that stop. And, of course, by now we're behind the schedule, so now we get on the freeway, and now we are in the middle of the morning rush hour traffic. So it's just taken us forever. And we had left plenty of time. We thought we would get there two hours before our flight. By the time we actually got to the airport and got to, to, to the check-in station, it was only an hour left. And we had some problems with our ticket that we had to do something special off to the other desk. We had to come back. And then they told us, now, you need to go and check in when you get out to the flight, you know, out to the gate. And that, this, this the airport is, um, instead of like here where you go through and there's one security for the whole airport to get out there, every gate has its own security. So, and of course, our gate was way out at the very end. So we're rushing and running all the way through, and we've got to get there because they're going to board. We've got to be there by 10 after, and it's already 10 o'clock now. And we get into the security line, and it is the slowest. Now, if, you've been, if you think you have been in a slow security line, you have no idea. This was the slowest security line I had ever been in. I mean, it just took forever. And I'm looking at my watch, and the gate's right there. And right behind the glass, I can see there's the desk that we need to check in. And it's so close, but I can't reach it because i got to go through this. And we go through this whole thing, and they're taking forever. And the guy running the little back-and-forth screen thing, he's moving back and forth and looking at stuff, and it's driving me crazy. Finally, we get up there, and it's our turn. And, and the guy in front of me, this little old man, little old man gets up there, and he comes up and says, do I have to take off my shoes? We have been in line for 15 minutes. Everybody in front of you took off their shoes. That should tell you something. But no, he's got to ask. So he takes off his shoes. Do I need to take off my belt? Everybody else is taking off their belt. Melissa, she's so busy. Yes, sir. If you have any metal on you, you must take it all out. So he reaches into the pocket and he takes out his coins. And one at a time, he's putting, and I'm just like, I am, so, I was not having compassionate, loving thoughts toward this person. And then I thought, okay, fine, I can't do anything about him. I'm going to at least get myself ready. So I reached to grab one of the bins so I could get my stuff out and get it ready to go, because I know he's going to take forever. I was going to be ready to go as soon as I got. So I reached on, I grabbed for a bin. He looks at me and gives me this glare like I'm the person who has a problem. And then I noticed, there is a darkness inside of me. <laughs> There's a darkness inside of every one of us. See, we talk about sin, but a lot of times we, we talk about that. We, we think of big, hairy, evil kind of things. But the truth of the matter is, sin is something that lurks deep within. There's a darkness in every one of us. There's a brokenness in every one of us. And if we were this morning to put up on the big screen behind me, every one of your secret thoughts... Your hiddenness, greedy act, lie, habit, fantasy. If we could put up on the screen the inner contents of your heart, my heart. See, that's what Jesus said. He said, sin is not just about behavior and actions. Sin is something that deep within inside of you lurks. And so he said things like to look at a woman and to lust is the same as committing adultery. Because the real problem is not the action, which is bad enough, but the real problem is the heart. See, that's where the real problem lies. Jesus said it goes much, much deeper than just your behavior. And so we needed someone 
to remedy that problem. Someone who would not just clean up our acts so we would look better on the outside, but someone who would actually change our hearts because that's the only real remedy for sin. And that's what Jesus... He'd see, he didn't have that sin taint on his life. He lived a human life totally pleasing to God. He lived a sinless life. And he said in John 8, he said, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, but I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Because there is a debt to be paid for sin. There is always a debt to be paid. Sometimes people say things, well, if, if God's so loving and so forgiving, why can't he just forgive? Why did there have to be the cross? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why can't God just forgive? Because every time forgiveness is given, pain is involved. When you forgive someone for something, you choose not to retaliate to absorb the pain yourself. Every act of forgiveness involves pain and hurt. It's not enough to just say, oh, it's all good. What God did through Jesus Christ was absorbed the evil and the hurt and the pain of sin. See, that's why the cross is so important. That's why Jesus could say, I'm the only way, because only he lived that human life totally pleasing to God. Only he could pay the penalty of sin, not for himself, but for you and I. He said, when you, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, speaking about the cross, then you will know that I am he. Now understand, for his followers, for those who were looking for a Messiah, the fact that he was crucified on a cross would automatically disqualify him from any running for that job. Because scripture says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. That would automatically, the very thing that would disqualify him from being Messiah was the very thing by which he proved his Messiahship. He paid the price. Forgiveness always involves some suffering. And he suffered for us. And the resurrection is the proof that what he did was enough that he accomplished the work completely. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the temple that he'd spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed. They didn't get it at the time. It wasn't until afterwards and they thought about, this is what he was talking about. Only Jesus did that. And only Jesus offers the promise of grace. See, that is the unique contribution that Jesus makes. Every other religion operates on a performance method. We have to perform. Everyone operates on this idea, if I live a good enough life, that will get me to God. And the problem with that is, you can never be good enough. We live in a performance culture, don't we? I mean, really. We live in it from, from, from the earliest days of, of childhood. We have to get good grades. 
We have to get the best grades so we can get into the best university, so that we can get the best job in the best field, the best career, so that we can get the best compensation package, so we can afford the best house in the best neighborhood with the best schools, so our kids can go to the best schools and get the best grades and get the And there's that performance treadmill, and it just goes on and on from generation to generation to generation. And then we come to God, and we operate with that whole system in mind. And we think that God is the ultimate judge of my performance. And I have to do really, really good. The problem, like I said, is you can't be good enough because the standard is perfection. And I don't think anybody in this room reaches that level. And even if, even if God could somehow lower the bar just a little bit, maybe some of us would get in, but many of us would still be left behind. And even if he lowered it as as low as possible, there would still be somebody that would be left out. That's why what sounds like to be the most narrow, the most elitist of all sayings, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What sounds so exclusive is actually the broadest, most wide open door that could possibly be made because everybody can get in by grace. See, grace is God's answer to our sin. Grace is the only thing that we have we are totally dependent on and desperate for grace and only jesus offered that grace because every other religion every other philosophy every other rabbi every other teacher always taught the performance method and jesus said you can never perform enough i have to do it for you grace is uniquely jesus Probably the most well-known of all scriptures. John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Nothing is more inclusive than grace. Because it comes as a gift. Now here's the deal. Christ paid the price. He purchased that gift for you. But for every one of us, we have a decision to make what we're going to do with that gift. Because I could come this morning and I could have, I could have boxes of gifts for everybody and, every, and a name tag on every one of those gifts. And I could have them up, up, up here up front and I could lay them all out all along the front here. And you could find the one that has your name tag on it. But if you never picked that box up, if you never unpacked it, if you never took what was inside of it and made it your own, the gift has been given, but it's not been received. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, what he is saying is the door's been swung wide open. The gift has been given. It's got your name on it. But you got to take it. And it's not about earning or deserving or achieving or performing. It's a gift. It's a step of faith. It's a decision. To say, God, I am tired of trying to earn this on my own. I have tried and I come up short. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. That's the bottom line. In his book, The Reason for God, 
Tim Keller writes this. Most people in our culture believe that if there is a God, we can relate to him and go to heaven through leading a good life. Christianity teaches the very opposite. In the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a Savior. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.